Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. I'm an advocate of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, and today we're going to be looking at my own take on the uh, objectivist validation of a crucial, crucial point in political philosophy that no man has the right to initiate the use of physical force against another man. I use that formulation, which is the one that she first put into print in 1947 in Textbook of Americanism, a pamphlet that she uh, produced for the Motion Picture Alliance for uh, American Ideals, I think it is. And um, that's still a good formulation to use at any time. No man has the right to initiate the use of physical force against another man. But we're going to start way deeper than that to understand where it comes from and what it is. Because to understand what a concept or principle is and means, you have to know its source going back to perceptual reality. That's a point in the objectivist theory of knowledge. So I'm going to start back with a very basic axiom. You exist. You exist. And you do things. You act. You try to get certain things. You try to avoid other things. That is, you have purposes that you act for. What is a purpose? Well, let's make a differentiation. You're walking somewhere in a wilderness and you're leaving footprints. Your purpose is not to leave the footprints. That's an accidental, non-purposeful byproduct of your purpose. Let's say your purpose is to get to a lake in the distance. Then the lake is your purpose and the leaving of footprints and crunching of the leaves, the sound that that makes and the stirring up of the atmosphere and the casting of shadows. Those things are not why you're doing the action. Why are you walking? Well, you know why you're walking, going to the lake. So a purpose of an action is some result that you expect or hope the action to have that you intend to get, that you want to reach. Now, behind that, that, that amount so far is kind of generally understood among better philosophers, not necessarily the contemporary ones, but it's not a revolutionary point, but Ayn Rand goes deeper. And she says, what is required for there to be purposes, for there to be things that you act to gain and or keep? She uses the term value just to bring another slant on it. I'm using the term purpose. Value is a little wider, but purpose will do just fine here. What is assumed in your having a purpose. 
there has to be some alternative. It has to make a difference to you. You have to have something at stake. Getting there must be something you are acting to gain and or keep because getting there does something, does something for you, the agent. You care about it. You want to be at the lake. Uh, therefore, the, behind every purposeful action, behind every pursuit of the value in more canonical objectivist terms, there is an alternative, an alternative in the condition of the agent. Notice that there's an alternative whether footprints are left or not, but that's not the purpose. There's an alternative of whether crunched leaves make a sound or not. If you stopped walking, that would stop crunching, but that's not why you're doing it. You're doing it because it makes a difference to you whether you are at the lake now or you are not. That's why you act, that's your purpose. So behind purposeful action, there is an alternative in the condition of the actor, the agent, the one who acts, that is the cause of him projecting some future state of affairs that will benefit him or at least avoid a harm to him. And he acts in the face of an alternative in his condition. What is the fundamental alternative, she goes on to ask. What is the fundamental alternative, and I think of it now in your condition, not whether you're at the lake or not, not whether your hands are by your side or up in the air, not whether you deplete your energy reserves or don't, not whether you uh, are in the sun or in the shade. The fundamental alternative behind all purposeful action, the fundamental way you can be affected is to exist or go out of existence. It's the alternative of your life versus your death that gives rise to all lesser alternatives. Let's say you want to go to the lake because it's very hot and you want to cool off. You want to take a nice, refreshing swim. Or you want to go to the lake to catch fish to, get, to eat for dinner. Or you want to go to the lake if it's a more sophisticated situation because you want to take a sample of the water to see if the pollution uh, has receded or not, or whether it's safe to drink the lake water or not. There could be a million different reasons why you went to the lake, but all of them pertain to the fact that you face the alternative of life or death. Notice, if you didn't care, whether you lived or died, if you were terminally depressed, nothing would be worth anything to you and you wouldn't be able to act. You wouldn't be able to get out of bed. It's only because you want things, the, you're pursuing things to benefit yourself, that there is such a thing as generating an action, directing it towards an envisioned future end and trying to bring it out, bring it about. So the fundamental alternative that gives rise to the existence of purposes, values, 
goals, pursuits, is the actor's existence or non-existence, is life or death. That means that life is the ultimate end behind all the lesser ends and that generates all the lesser ends. So your life is your ultimate value, which if you didn't care about, you couldn't care about anything else. If you weren't pursuing staying in existence, if you didn't care whether you lived or died, you couldn't do anything lesser. Now, what is this? That's a standard of value. It sets the standard of value, the, uh, the fact that you want to live, if you do. What's the standard of moral value? What's the standard of morality? What's the, the purpose of morality? Well, morality is, uh, moral values are chosen values. They're values that you adopt by free choice. And morality is a system of principles to tell you what alternatives uh, to pursue and what to avoid. It's a code of uh, principles to guide you in successfully achieving your ultimate purpose, which as we've seen is to live. So the standard of moral value is the requirements of your survival as the kind of being you are. Because you can't survive as a fish. You can't survive as a bird or a turtle. You have to survive as a human being. That's a given biological fact. So as Ayn Rand puts it, the standard of morality is man's life qua man. Your life is your purpose, and you look at, well, what does a human life require? Can I graze? No. Can I send roots down into the soil? No. Can I go out and run with the herd? No. What is it that human life survive, uh, requires, human survival? What is man's ecological niche, as it used to be put? Man's means of survival is his mind, his thinking. Thinking guides his action, and he uses knowledge. Where did that knowledge come from? If you know how to get to the lake, how did you learn how to get to the lake? You had to use your mind. If you know how to take a water sample and test for pollution or that there's even such a thing as unsafe water, how did you know that? You had to learn it. You had to learn it by a process of thought. Now, even if you're imitating somebody else, you got the knowledge from a book and you're just following road steps and you don't even know what you're doing. Somebody had to be thinking to get the knowledge to put in the book and you're not gonna to be too successful at any pursuit unless you learned independently the knowledge that those people learn so that you can apply it intelligently. So man's means of survival, man's life call, man means using reason. Reason is man's basic biological equipment for survival. And there's uh, very simple statements of that, both in objectivism and in biology. So let's just start with objectivism if I, yeah. This is from the Fountainhead. 
from Rourke's courtroom speech. Man cannot survive except through his mind. He comes on earth unarmed. His brain is his only weapon. Animals obtain food by force. Man has no claws, no fangs, no horns, no great strength of muscle. He must plant his food or hunt it. To plant, he needs a process of thought. To hunt, he needs weapons. And to make weapons, a process of thought. From this simplest necessity to the highest religious abstraction, from the wheel to the skyscraper, everything we are and everything we have comes from a single attribute of man, the function of his reasoning mind. Now I'm going to give you some biologist uh, statements of the same thing so that you see this is not some kind of ideologue putting forward her favorite thing. This is from Theodosius Dobchansky. He's one of the greatest evolutionary biologists uh, of history. He was the guy who worked out the evolution of the horse from the Eohippus, if you've seen that in textbooks. He's a great defender of, of biology and of evolution. He says, judged by any reasonable criteria, man represents the highest, most progressive, and most successful product of organic evolution. The really strange thing is it's so obvious an appraisal has been over and over again challenged by some biologists. The evidence of the success of man as a biological species is ample and overwhelming. And it goes on to talk about the world population at the time of the Roman Empire, supposed to have been 150 to 200 million. And the estimate for 1947, when you wrote this, was 2 0.3 billion, and now it's 7 billion. Um, man has become one of the few truly cosmopolitan species, Dobchansky says. He has penetrated into all parts of the Earth's surface and has established permanent habitation on all continents and major islands, except in Antarctica. And even there, he manages to live for short periods of time. He has accordingly become exposed to every variety of geographic environment which the world has to offer, and he is adapted to those environments. But while animals and plants become adapted to their environments by modifying their bodies and their genes, man has remained the same and has to a considerable extent modified environments to suit his purposes and preference and has created a completely new environment. And that was in 1947 before we had been to space. What does it do to? He says in another work, the adaptive value, biologically adaptive value of forethought or foresight is too evident to need demonstration. It has raised man to the status of the Lord of creation. A great evolutionary biologist saying, reason is man's basic means of survival. Now, if the morality is to live according to your nature as a rational being, and morality is objective and therefore universal, 
It's immoral to sacrifice another man to yourself. There can't be any moral principle that I get to sacrifice you, destroy you for my ends, but you can't do it for me. Morality is a universal objective relationship of every individual to reality first and to other men second. So it's a principle of objectivism. You must not sacrifice yourself to others and you must not sacrifice others to yourself. People have to live as non-sacrificial, independent equals. So what does it mean to sacrifice? It means to surrender a value, to lose a value. Sometimes it's you get a little value in return, but not as much as you gave. So you give up a dollar and get a penny. It's still a sacrifice. And the ultimate sacrifice is just to give away the dollar. You can't make another person give away a dollar if you were to be moral. That's immoral by an objective morality. Another way of putting that is that each person has a right, has a right to his life and his body and his property against the actions of other people. So it's immoral to beat, kill, or rob another person. I think that's pretty obvious. Where the interesting thing comes in, there's not too many philosophers, there's some, but not too many philosophers saying, you know, go out and beat up people, steal what they have. The interesting part is that most of the coercion that goes on, most of the things we oppose, most of the violation of rights occurs through threats, not through actual hands-on application. For instance, have you ever been grabbed by a policeman? I never have. I mean, you know, physically grabbed, that's the ultimate physical force. Has a policeman come into your home, burst into your home and grabbed your property? No. Now, you might say, well, I know a guy who had a lien put on his property by the IRS. Yeah, well, how did they do that? Did they send tanks into the banks and shoot it up until the, uh, they could get your property, that person's property? No, it's all done by threat. If you don't comply with the law, the police will come. If necessary, they will draw guns. If you don't obey the guns, they will fire those guns or they will lay hands on you and grab you and pull you away. So it's the threat of force that is involved in 99.99% of social interactions that are force, that are coercive, because the threat of force is still force. It's saying... I'm going to do what's, it would be immoral for me to do if it's an initiation of force. You're not responding to a criminal who's started the use of force. I'm going to use a force on you unless you follow my orders. So you have no right to use force on me, but it's the promise of that 
that gets obedience. So it's through threats that our government governs. Now, there are, let us not you know, minimize the cases in which police shoot somebody, and more importantly, in which the military go to war and kill each other. I mean, what's going on in the Ukraine now? Deadly force, not just threats, it began as threats, but deadly force is being used daily and people are dying in the thousands. So it's not, not to mention the property damage. It, it's not like, oh, it never comes to blows, but it's not the way a country rules its citizenry is not by sending the police in everywhere that they want something done. They couldn't, there wouldn't be enough police. So it's the threat of force, which backs up all laws, um, that is the way that the government violates your rights. Now we get to the topic at hand. There are two ways of dealing with people. I call it the mind respecting way and the mind negating way. The use of force or the threat of the use of force is a mind negating way of dealing with another person. And since his mind, as we've seen, is his means of survival, it's an attack on his life. It's sacrificing him to you. And I wanted to read from Atlas Shrugged from the climax where the hero, in case it would be minimize the plot spoilers here. If there's anyone out there hasn't read Atlas Shrugged, and I envy you because you can read and have an unrepeatable experience or an only semi-repeatable experience. The head of state, who was modeled on Harry Truman, by the way, but it's not literally Harry Truman, it's a future society, has captured the hero. And the hero is the man of the mind supremely, preeminently. And he is, um, the, the society is collapsing and the president, Mr. Thompson is convinced that the hero, John Galt can save them if you'll tell them what to do. He can save the country if you'll tell them what to do. And he's doing a gunpoint. All right, then, says Mr. Thompson, I hold a gun. What are you going to do about it? I'll act accordingly. I'll obey you. What? I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Do you mean it? I mean it. Literally. He saw the eagerness of Mr. Thompson's face ebb slowly and under a look of bewilderment. I will perform any action you order me to perform. If you order me to move into the office of an economic dictator, I'll move into it. If you order me to sit at a desk, I'll sit at it. If you order me to issue a directive, I will issue the directive you order me to issue. 
Oh, but I don't know what directives to issue. I don't either. There was a long pause. Well, said Gall, what are your orders? I want you to save the economy of the country. I don't know how to save it. Meaning on the premises that he's allowed to use. I want you to find a way. I don't know how to find it. I want you to think. How will your gun make me do that, Mr. Thompson? No, said Gold. you don't want me to think. When you force a man to act against his own choice and judgment, it's his thinking that you want him to suspend. You want him to become a robot. I shall comply. That's what the threat of force does. The threat of force says, look, you have your thoughts, your beliefs. You can't use them. I'll kill you or something lesser unless you follow my will. So it's at the mind that all guns are aimed. To take it in the simplest possible terms, a man is starting to turn to the right. He wants to go to that lake. Another man comes up with a club or a gun and says, don't go that way, go this way. Why? Because if you go that way, I'll shoot you. That's not a reason. That's not an explanation. That's not appeal, an appeal to his values, his mind, his judgment, his choices. That's saying, I'm going to run your body now. Your mind is out of the picture. You want to go over there and do this. I say you'll go here and do that. Now, it's very simple. Obey or I'll destroy you. But to obey is not to think. Thinking and obedience are opposites. Thinking cannot go on under force because thinking is making connections. Thinking is integration. It's putting the pieces together to see the big picture. In Galt's speech in Atlas Shrugged, she says, no concept man forms is valid unless he integrates it without contradiction into the total sum of his knowledge. You can't do that if one of the things you have to accept is something that the coercer orders you at gunpoint, not respecting your mind, not giving you a reason, not explaining, just saying, do it or else. And it's the same as pity. You could give in voluntarily to pity. Oh, don't think that, don't do that. That'll make me feel so bad. You've got to serve my needs. Don't, don't go off and leave me. I'm, I'm helpless. You've got to take care of me. I'm going to die if you go. Now, what if a person accepts that and says, well, I had my life and my goals, but I've been taught that need is a claim, and so I'm going to give in to pity. Well, he can't integrate. He can't fit that into his life. That's 
also aimed at his mind. That's also a form of obedience. That's a voluntary enslavement. It's accepting the values of someone else as superior to your own, which means abandoning your mind, your choices, your purposes for the sake of something that does not mean that much to you. Now, suppose it did. Suppose it's the woman you love above all else or the man you love above all else. Then I need it can be a very compelling argument. Oh, yeah, I don't want you to die. I mean, even your pet, you've got a beloved dog and he barks because he needs to go out or he needs food. If you love the pet, it's your value to go get him food or take him on the walk. It's not, it's not unselfish. Oh, I got to serve my pet. If that's your attitude, you should give that pet to someone who will value him. If that's your attitude in a marriage, you should divorce. So there are, of course, many cases where the well-being of another animal, let alone another human being, which is a thousandfold more, uh, is way up there in your hierarchy of values. In that case, you're not sacrificing yourself. You're not obeying. You are, your mind has been respected because you understand why this is what you now want to do and is in your interest to do and is in the service of your love. So if I had time, I would try and uh, argue for if you allow one little contradiction into your thinking, it creates a hole in the fabric of your knowledge that will cause a tear and a bigger tear and a bigger tear. You can't say, okay, I'm going to be a scientist, but I'm not allowed to question global warming. And my field is chemistry, biology, something. I mean, they all touch on it. So sooner or later, it's going to come up in your work. What are you going to do then? There can't be any censored areas, but either the pity of someone, the tears of them, or the guns demand that you isolate and wall off what you had thought before that happened and, and accept his will as superior to your judgment. Okay, let's stop there. It's 4.33. I think you see really in from top to bottom now why the use of physical force is an assault on your ability to think and therefore upon your means of survival and therefore upon your life and therefore upon your ver the very act of having purposes. Thank you very much. Uh, is there a, a pressing question or can we postpone that um, to next week? We can postpone for the next week. Okay, the next week is a Q&A, next, next Monday. And, um, and there's a number of accumulated questions, which is good. So we'll have a, a very uh, lively Q&A session next Monday. Until then, thank you very much and goodbye.